Five years ago, I crossed into the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I went through the process of getting the visitor visa and then spent the night in Rubavu or Gassini, a sleepy little lake town in northeastern Rwanda, a few hundred meters from the border with friends. And we woke up early and crossed into this lively border into a completely different kind of place. The streets were chaotic. The streets were collapsing. <laughs> we met a car waiting for us to take us to the park. As we bumped along the dirt roads, it seemed to rise out of the ground in front of us, smoke curling from its ominously flat top, the volcano, Uragongo. A park sign met us, ornamented with rusty bullet holes, which made the machine gun that our guide carried seem just a little bit more reasonable. We hiked up all day, over 11,500 feet, and came to the summit and looked down into the cauldra of this living mountain. It's heart born before us, ripped open, sulfur in the air, a lake of bubbling lava. And during the day, as you look down the other side of the mountain, you could see all of these little craters going down the side and into the distance, a path that the mountain seemed to have walked on its way to its current site. And I sat there on the rim at night, taken in by the raw magnitude of this thing. We all slept in wooden huts bolted to the rim of the cauldra, and at night the lava illuminated the smoke all around us as it rose heavenward. It was an encounter, something that changed the ground under my feet, and if it blew, the whole world would change. And the whole world had changed. This volcano had shaped the landscape all around me. It built the mountains and unearthed the minerals, which are a, both a blessing and a curse to the region. This volcano had already shaped the world around us, and it wasn't done. I imagine the same could be said for Jesus in Israel. There was pressure building, and it had been for centuries, and this moment seemed volcanic. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah has arrived, and he would reshape the landscape of their world. The Messiah was not just a person. The Messiah was an event, an encounter that would leave craters in his wake. And today we are going to look at how Jesus' ministry announces and embodies the kingdom of God, and look at how God invites us to share in this volcanic, world-changing mission in the world. Now the Jews wanted a Messiah to solidify their national independence and identity, to rid themselves of Rome and their shame of having to be ruled by unclean Gentiles, to purify their nation. And the Messiah was supposed to do that, at least that is what they thought the Messiah should do, and that's the problem for Jesus. His mission as Messiah is more volcanic than they can possibly imagine. He will turn the whole world upside down and purify Israel, but not in the way that they think. Now, we're taking a brief break from Matthew and dipping into Mark for a week. Mark offers us a long drama in discovering Jesus' identity. He tells us right at the beginning of the gospel that this is an account of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is a story about a earth and history-shaping event. But the people in this story don't know that, and we as readers walk with them as they figure this whole thing out. 
as they learn who Jesus is and what his presence meant to the world. And this is why Jesus is always telling people not to call him Messiah. They don't understand what that means yet. Now, earlier in Mark, there's a heated exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees about rituals of hand-washing among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus had very sharp words for them. This is what he said. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And all of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, Mark often takes stories and teachings, and he, he puts them together in order to interpret each other. Since Jesus is not just a teacher, he is an event. What he says and what he does can't be separated from one another. Now, in school, we affectionately called these, the way that Mark does this, a Mark sandwich. And we are getting a Mark sandwich here. Teaching and stories layered on top of each other. You have a story about Jesus healing people at the end of Mark 6, a long conversation with the Pharisees about ritual purity, and then this story about the Syrophoenician woman, and finally, more healings. The whole group of stories go together. He helps the deaf hear and mute speak, even as he is teaching the people of Israel to hear the truth about what makes you clean and encourages the unclean to speak and be made well. It's in the middle of all of that sandwich that we find the story of Jesus leaving Israel and going to a Gentile city for some unexplained reason. And we have this remarkably strange story where a woman who has a child suffering from an unclean spirit approaches him and she is desperate. Her child is possessed and afflicted and Jesus' reputation must have preceded him because she comes to him wants him to heal her child. Now remember, Jesus is in an unclean city with unclean people that eats unclean food, and an unclean woman comes to him and asks him to remove an unclean spirit. The whole thing is unclean, and Jesus says something harsh, at least to our ears. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, an unclean animal. Now, presumably, by this, he means, I am a Jew who has come to fulfill the purpose and calling of Israel. Why should I spend my time and energy healing a Gentile when there are Jews I could be helping? Now, it's not entirely clear why Jesus has such harsh words for this woman in need. But I think when he does this, what he's really doing is voicing the sentiments of the Pharisees he just rebuked just before in the chapter. And this woman has the chance to reveal her superior understanding of the kingdom of God. She is the living picture of what Jesus has just taught before about defilement. She responds, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table. In other words, she persists in seeking the mercy of God, knowing that there is plenty of bread to share, even with those who are not yet called children, crumbs or not. 
And Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. It is her faith in Jesus, her humble and contrite heart that rids this unclean spirit and the persistence to find grace she knows Jesus alone can offer. So Jesus embodies the new and radical kingdom of God that is breaking in, a kingdom that will spread far further than imagined into people who are not yet ready to embrace as fellow children of God. They are still discovering just how explosive this kingdom will be, how many craters that it will leave in the world as it walks its way toward the kingdom. This kingdom will change the landscape of everything. And Jesus is not just a messenger. He is the message. He is not just telling us about the kingdom of God. He is establishing the kingdom of God wherever his foot touches, in Israel and outside of Israel. And to those who think they are clean but are not, to those who are unclean but become clean by faith, to the poor and broken who catch the edges of his robe, and indeed to the empire that will brutally kill him. And here's the thing about volcanic activity. It does not happen all at once. Sure, you have serious events, an eruption or a lava flow, but it's a continuous process. Niragongo is not finished changing the landscape of the eastern DRC of Goma. It's still happening. And right now, the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated in his life, death, and resurrection is still happening. The volcanic event of Christ is still unfolding until the day when his will on earth will be as it is in heaven. And we, who are his body in that world-shaping process, not just by sharing a message, but by being a transforming presence in the world. Those two were never separated in the life of Jesus, and they should not be separated by us. And when James tells us in his explosive second chapter of his letter that faith without works is dead, I think this is what he means. The proclamation of Jesus was never separated from his transforming presence and mercy, even to those who may have seemed outside the boundaries of his family. Faith, trust in Jesus, a confession of faith, that does not find itself embodied in love is not a faith that can stay alive. It will die. Living faith requires living love to survive. They always appear together in the real world. And so if we are people who profess that Jesus is Lord, but are not part of his merciful presence in the world, James says something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. The kingdom of God continues to unfold. And we who share in Christ's body have a part that we can play. And it starts with what we do right here in worship. You see, the Jews saw the Gentiles as second-class citizens. It seems to be universal human weakness. They think that they are dogs, and it's prideful and debilitating to be open to the grace that needed to be extended to them. But James says, too often in the church, we do, not, we do the very same thing. Not necessarily as a division between Jews and Gentiles, but as a division between rich and poor. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You want to know what we can do to participate in the radical inbreaking of the kingdom of God? We always think about evangelism crusades or major plans and strategies, but, and those, of course, can be good. But the backbone, the very backbone of Christ's witness in the world is more subtle than that, more foundational. It comes in the character of those who belong to him. If we want to be a people who begin to reshape the world we live in, we have to belong to Christ's world first a world where the broken sinners come equally to the table, regardless of their bank statements or social connections or race, class, and gender. And that is a radical thing to do. It's unnatural. It is absolutely essential. When we look at the way the world looks at us, we need to see Jesus. And a church like ours, this issue will define whether or not we are a social club or a witness to the kingdom of God. And it starts when we all recognize that we are always first this desperate Syrophoenician woman. We are not entitled or self-reliant. We come to Jesus as people who are desperate for him to give us life and grace, crumbs under the table. We come with humility even to ask as the dogs would gather up underneath the table. And we do this every week in our prayer of humble access. It's part of our liturgy because we recognize how foundational it is to rely solely on the grace of God. But we then have to see all those who come through that door as people who are equally desperate and in need of God's grace and mercy, rich or poor, well-dressed or not well-dressed. And we can do this not because it's a nice thing to do, but because when we were broken and estranged and desperate, God welcomed us in the person of Christ Jesus. And if you have not gotten to that point yet, where you recognize how entirely and completely and utterly you need the mercy of God, I encourage you to take a look at this woman in Mark as your role model. Do you want to be a part of this kingdom, this volcanic reshaping of the world? It starts right here. It starts with the humility we bring to and worship and the humility of how we welcome one another. This year, we're cultivating our souls through prayer and peace. And one of the concerns that arises when we cast a vision like this is what about mission? What about the kingdom of God? What about justice? This time of introspection feels like a retreat from the outward movement of the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. We cannot give to others what we do not have ourselves. The kingdom of God, which breaks into the world, is also the establishment of peace, of shalom. And it feels radically disturbing to a world that is disturbed. But to those who belong to it, 
they find true rest, true joy, find wholeness. And when two people of radically different backgrounds come to the same table of the Lord together, that is real peace. That is peace. That peace is only possible when both parties have peace in their own souls to meet each other there first. Without that peace, the work of mission becomes yet another activity designed to persuade the discord of our own souls that we will be enough, that we will be good enough, that we will be okay. We can't be participants in the work of the kingdom before letting the kingdom rule in our own hearts. And that is peace. And if we do that, if we are a people so marked by God's radical grace that we show it without partiality to others, the world will know, I promise you. We will be scandalous and disruptive and attractive all at the same time, which is to say we will have real peace and we will be like Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we are grateful. Lord, we are grateful that when we come to this table, we do so only relying on your mercy. And yet, Lord, we know that that true living faith and living love are always together in your person and, Lord, in your body. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us the peace that we seek of our souls so that, Lord, out of that peace, we can be peacemakers in a world that is desperate for your goodness and love. Pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.